This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start Talkin' Mule Deer. Hey, welcome back to Talkin' Mule Deer. I'm Steve Belinda, your host. Uh, Jody's out on assignment today. I always wanted to say that. So uh, today we're going to be talking Idaho with a couple of Idaho's finest uh, fishing game employees. We have Daryl Mites, who's the statewide deer and out coordinator. And we have Matt Perrin, who's the state mule deer initiative leader. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Good to be Steve. here. So what's, you know, Idaho's a great state for mule deer, great state for a lot of other wildlife. What, tell us what's, what's new, what's going on in Idaho. There's a lot of stuff going on from what I can see. One of the things that we just completed here in August was our, uh, we took the opportunity to rewrite our statewide mule deer management plan, and uh, Matt here played obviously a significant role in that. Uh, can I stop you right there, Daryl? When you say statewide mule deer management plan, you mean you guys have put together a strategy for how to manage the population and habitat across the whole state? We did, and we first kicked that off with, uh, we did a survey of mule deer hunters all across the state of Idaho, and we asked them those general questions like, why do you hunt? What do you find enjoyable? What are your expectations when you go hunt? Uh, what did, you, did you get the, we want more, bigger, and yes, better bucks? <laughs> yes, yeah. We get that all the time. That's natural. We've heard that for 30 years. Um, and but the important thing there is when we asked people about what what's important to you, what would you like to see out on the landscape? What are the issues that you feel we need to be addressed? Because we told them we're getting ready to write rewrite the plan. Okay, then what issues do we need to tackle and take on? And Matt here played a significant role in that. He was one of the uh, main co-authors on that. And one of the main topics that came up that we did address uh, was hunter congestion. Okay. That's no secret. Uh, so that's not people with a chest cold. That's too many <laughs> too many hunters out where you want to go. Yes. I can relate to that, I, you know, wherever I go anymore. So you guys went out to your publics, yeah. to your consumers, and said, okay, tell us what you think we need to be addressing. And then you came back, Matt, and... Uh, Ended up writing a plan about this, right? Yeah. So the plan's got lots of components, obviously. But as Daryl mentions, one of the key drivers for getting the plan done and, and getting the plan done when we did is, is the issue of hunter congestion. We consistently hear that. It's not new. We, we did a survey in 2007. We, re, you know, we redid that survey essentially very similar in 2017. And about half of our hunters have consistently told us we're concerned about the number of folks that we see when we're out there hunting mule deer. So... A big part of that plan is a chapter dealing with hunter congestion. And we don't, we don't put forth any prescriptions that say, this is how we will fix this. What we tried to do was lay out a set of concepts where we introduce a variety of, of tools that we could implement or that our commission could decide to implement to deal with hunter congestion as we move forward over the next five years during the implementation of the plan. But we want to hear from our constituents. We want to hear from our hunters about which of those strategies would be you know, palatable to them. Okay. So for those of us that are ignorant on how you guys structure your seasons in Idaho, how do you have multiple seasons? Is it a long season, early season? How many resident hunters? Um, how does that work? Um, we offer several different opportunities across Idaho. What we've called uh, our general hunt opportunities where the average person could go down to Walmart, buy their deer tag or elk tag, 
and go hunt. But in addition to that, in several areas across the state, we offer what we call limited or very limited controlled or limited entry type opportunities where you have to draw. And so uh, we try and provide a variety of opportunity all across the state of Idaho, whether that's for elk or for mule deer. Uh, but if those people know that a lot of times you're not going to draw, but their fallback position is they still know they can go down to Walmart or a fishing game office, pick up a tag, and they can still go deer hunt every year. And that's very important to mule deer hunters in the state of Idaho is that opportunity to yeah. hunt every year. So in in a, in a flip side, in those limited draw units, then you're managing for quality. That's where folks are... Uh, I'm assuming you have some sort of preference point or bonus point system, or how does that work? No, uh, Idaho is very unique. We're probably only one of two states still left in the West that we do not offer any special type of bonus point oh, wow. or preference point. It's one-on-one. Everyone, every year, still has the same chance or the same opportunity as their friends and neighbors. There's... We have not yet instituted any type of bonus point or preference point system. It's <laughs> I would imagine you've got some folks like me who's been really lucky in the draw that can draw quite often, and other folks haven't drawn in their lifetime for those units. Yes, and not it's not to say it's not um, controversial because the topic comes up uh, every few years because we all have sportsmen in our right. state that hunts across the West as well, and all the most of the Western states have some kind of bonus point, preference right. point type system. So the topic comes up, and then on chat rooms or public meetings, it becomes a pretty heated debate as to whether Idaho should go down that road or not or keep the way we have. And so it's an interesting discussion. Well, great. Um, so you guys talked about hunter congestion. Um, without getting into numbers, but what's the solution to hunter congestion? Well... <clears throat> Like I said, we didn't put forward, here's the solution. We put forward a series of potential solutions that we want to hear back from our public. But one of the things that we do consistently hear uh, from our resident hunters, no surprise, is that they're concerned about the number of non-resident hunters. Um, so one of the first steps that our commission has taken is putting forth put forth a new rule that will give them ability to limit um, non-resident participation by game management unit. So currently in Idaho, for example, we have 15,500 non-resident deer tags that are available. For th These are different than the controlled hunts. These are for general right. over-the-counter tags. Theoretically, all those hunters could go hunt one unit if they chose to do so. Um, this new rule that our commission just put forth that was approved by our legislature gives our commission the ability to limit non-resident participation by game management unit so theoretically they take uh, that same you know statewide cap but distribute them across the state so what they do on a given game management unit we can look back over the last five years see how many hunters we had in that unit and now the commission can say okay if if they choose to do so they could take 10 percent of that number and limit the number so if you had 500 hunters over the last five years, on average, they can say, okay, we're going to put 50 non-residents right. in that unit. Well, it, you know, we see that in other states where the state hunters thinks non-residents are the issue with overcrowding and over-harvest and taking a smaller bucks. Is, I mean, what's the ratio between 
non-resident hunters at 15,300 and the resident hunters? I mean, what is it? Is it a non-resident issue or is it just more people are getting out there, it seems like, at the same time? It's both. It's highly variable, right? The easy answer is it depends. But, <laughs> so, right, so we, you can tell Matt's a biologist. That's one of our favorite sayings. Yeah. It, it depends. So we, we took a hard look at this, and our commission has looked at it. And we have units in the state that, yeah, we've had a really increased level of participation. But when you dig into it, it's actually residents. That it, you know, yeah. we've had, but we have other units in the state where we have a whole lot of hunters. And we have some units in the southeast part of the state where we've got 30-plus percent of our hunters are, in fact, non-residents. So distributing non-residents um, a little bit differently will probably work better in some units than yeah. others. So that's, you know, that's the first step that our commission has decided to take. Look at that, and then you know, we've got a series of other uh, options. Is it one season? I mean, we, we know we have bow seasons, and some states have muzzleloader seasons. You know, oftentimes, you know, rifle season is what we refer to as, you know, deer season. And, you know, like Colorado's got four seasons. How do you guys run Idaho? Uh, in most areas across the state of Idaho, yes, we offer uh, a general over-the-counter archery hunting opportunity that runs like from August 30th to September 30th. Then for the most part, our general rifle or any weapon season that starts October 10th and runs across the entire state either until the 24th or the 31st of October. In addition to that, we do offer some limited opportunities on a controlled hunt basis uh, for that premium time period in the month of November on selected units across the state, So, and including muzzleloader seasons. So I would imagine from a non-resident's perspective, being a non-resident Idaho, when I look at where I want to go, we're, we don't have a lot of choices for over-the-counter hunts anymore. And I think that's probably why you're seeing a lot of folks coming to Idaho is because you can still come buy an over-the-counter tag. And so you can make a decision on a Friday night and be hunting on a Saturday if you live that close. So That's true. So long as there's still still tags left. So in the past few years we have been selling out our tags. So, so long as there's a piece of those 15,500 tags left, you can right. drive over and get them. Yeah. So what else was in the management plan behind besides hunter congestion? What, did you deal with habitat at all, man? I mean, I'm a habitat guy. You know, I always come back to it. I think the root of all evil and the root of all good is, is based on the habitat from the ground up. What, did you see anything that came out from the public? Did you address habitat issues at all? Absolutely, yeah. Our public is, is concerned about habitat, and it's something that they often bring up. And, you know, the, the program that, that I work in, our mule deer initiative program, it's about mule deer, keeping, keeping mule deer hunting really good in the state and keeping mule deer hunters happy. But that, to me, that all boils back down to habitat. You've got to have quality habitat in the state to support healthy populations of mule deer to keep hunters happy. So, you know, a big part of the plan does uh, revolve around discussions on the different seasonal needs of mule deer right so summer range habitat needs winter range habitat needs some of the things that have gone on um, in the great basin we've had you know lots of severe large fires that have negatively impact winter range on the other side of that on summer range we've had a lack of disturbance on a lot of our forested habitats and you know, those forests need disturbance. That fire is, is oftentimes a good thing at high elevation summer range. So 
we talk about things uh, that we're working on there, projects that we're doing together with the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management to put prescribed fire back on the landscape. Um, so similar to that project that we work together on with plant and sagebrush on winter range is you go back in and try to do some restoration enhancements to try to jumpstart that process so that we can have that good habitat back for deer. Absolutely. And uh, partnerships are a real key to getting these things done. You know, we've been working with you guys for, I think we're going on five years now, yeah. working on the project there in the Bennett Hills in uh, Unit 45, which is, you know, historically one of our most famous uh, places to hunt mule deer in the state of Idaho. There's, there's a long history there. And unfortunately, there's there have been a, a series of fires that have rolled through that country. And we went from having a really healthy sagebrush sea system that uh, not only mule deer are dependent on for their winter range is extremely important for, for sage grouse as well. And we've lost a lot of that habitat. You know, that sagebrush and bitter brush has been replaced with cool season annual grasses like yeah. Medusa head and cheatgrass that aren't doing a lot of good. <laughs> yeah, I know my shoelaces are always full of it. And for, for our listeners out there, uh, we've mentioned this a couple times and we've profiled it in our magazine and other rings, but we have a project going on to restore crucial winter range and coarse sage grouse habitats. Uh, the uh, Idaho Fish and Game has been very generous with us, uh, helping us plan that, giving us money for defunding plants, getting us nursery space. And then we're working off a grant with the BLM, a half a million dollar grant that we've been going out with crews and, and going back into these areas that we've identified are the highest need for the local deer herd, for the local sage grouse populations and replanting. And, uh, you know, Matt, you and I talked on the project uh, after the project last year. We're seeing phenomenal success and survival. And I think that's because we're getting that snow and rain right after we leave. But you're right. The, the partnership we've put together there with BLM, Idaho Fish and Game, Idaho Species State uh, Office of Species Confer Conservation, and the Mule Deer Foundation, both with our volunteers and, and our planting crews, has been really good. And I know that we're looking to continue that moving forward. But uh, you mentioned something earlier that's big for the Mule Deer Foundation, seasonal movements and migrations. Um, I read recently that you guys just uh, ended up closing on a conservation easement on a, a really important spot for animals crossing a highway. Tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, sure. So we've got, you know, a, a variety of spots around the state that we've identified as priorities to work on migration issues. And one of those is uh, the, the Rocky Point Migration Corridor, which is... Uh, where's Rocky Point at? Yeah, it's in the southeast corner uh, of Idaho. If, if For folks that are familiar, it's just south of Montpelier. So it's down towards the Utah-Wyoming tri-border yep, intersection. Yep, and so those, those, that's a group of mule deer. So that's part of our caribou population of mule deer, what we refer to as our caribou deer. And there, there's about 20,000 deer that, that summer in, in that herd in the caribou mountains. And about a third of those migrate to the south and cross Highway 30 to get to the Bear Lake Plateau. And, and when they do that, uh, the, the, a lot of those deer don't make it across that road. There's about a three-mile pinch point that those deer are crossing the road. And... You know, it varies over time, but uh, it's pretty safe to say that, you know, over 70 mule deer are getting run over on average on about a three-mile stretch there. Those are the ones that are getting hit on the road? Those are the ones that we know about. Yeah, so, and that's where I was going with yeah. that. We, we know that not all deer die in the right-of-way, that, you know, it's only about a quarter to 40% of them actually die in the right-of-way. Most of them are crippled up and go and die within a mile or two of where they get hit at, yep. so... So, so yeah, we're, we're really excited. This, this is 
nothing new. Our, our agency has been hearing about this issue for 30 years from the public. And we've been trying to work together with our transportation department. You know, the stars have aligned. Things are in place. We've got a great working relationship with our local transportation staff there. Um, we now have money in the queue. It's in their planning process. We will be constructing crossing structures. It's scheduled for uh, construction in 2025, which sounds like a long ways away. Oh, that's like <laughs> tomorrow and that sort of time. In their world, it's like tomorrow. But one of the key pieces to getting that done, one of the things that we had to step up to the plate so that to get done so that the, the transportation department can move forward on their end of things was securing conservation easements on private land there. And, and we just closed two conservation easements in November and December on about 1,800 acres of private land right at that bottleneck that'll, that'll secure that investment and, and secure that habitat for the long run. So let's just clarify, conservation easement is a basically a right-of-way and access agreement that you purchase from a, a volunteer willing landowner that allows you to do things on their property to benefit the deer and, and elk and other animals in this case. It's not a taking from a government standpoint. Absolutely not. It's not a take. It's a willing landowner. And, and, and really, in this case, we don't want to do anything aside from there will be some crossing structures constructed there. There'll be some fencing associated with that. But, you know, this is fr from a ranching family. It's a completely compatible use. What we want is that to continue for those folks to be able to graze that land it's it's you know yeah. it's perfectly compatible they can they can continue to make their living on that land and continue for you know like deer have migrated through there for thousands of years so daryl um you've been around a while um how big of a deal is this i mean you've been i mean i can i've been doing conservation i'm starting my 30th year we were never talking about crossings and the amount of effort we're putting into certain specific areas. I mean, for, for Idaho, is this a big deal? It is because uh, we, we pulled off one of these structures just outside of Boise a few years ago on that deer herd. Uh, but for eastern Idaho, this is going to be our first big shot and attempt at this. Uh, and we're, like Matt referred to, I was the wildlife manager down there, wildlife biologist, like 25, 30 years ago. And we had identified it. Uh, it was a problem then. It's just a perfect natural point where animals cross, but it's on a very sharp curve. So motorists come around the corner and timing is everything. And so it's not a pretty sight. And something's we knew had to be done there. And as Matt pointed out here, it's it takes a lot of partnerships and a lot of players from and to pull something like this off. And it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, but yeah, we can't wait for this thing to get implemented, get it on the ground, because we think it's going to save thousands and thousands of mule deer. And what that will allow us to do then is give more opportunity back to Idaho sportsmen. Right. And and it's also, you know, we've, we've talked a lot on this podcast and with the Mule Deer Foundation Outreach about Secretarial Order 3362, uh, the conservation enhancement of uh, migration corridors and winter range. And you guys, I know, have a plan. Um, this was one of those priority areas. So this is actually plan and action. Yes. So, in, in, in you know, a lot of times we get accused of we're all about putting stuff on paper. But in this case, the plan is probably you guys have been working on this, for, like you said, for quite a long time. But this gave us maybe that little bit of push to get some money coming your way to close the easement, to get the fencing and, and other things done. 
um, tell us a little bit about you know whether that was a actually the case, Matt, and what else is in that plan, um, and and how you feel about how well this uh, secretarial order has helped Idaho in dealing with uh, crucial corridors and uh, winter range. Yeah, I think if anything, the action plan has just really brought the issue to the forefront for a variety of states, not only internally, but externally with our partners. And yeah, it, Rocky Point is one of our five identified priority areas in our state action plan. Um, so it's been instrumental in help getting things moving there and will continue to be in other places. So. Yeah, aside from Rocky Point, like I just mentioned, we do have other areas uh, outlined for implementation type projects, whether it's, you know, work, working together with our transportation department to find solutions for, you know, animals that aren't making it across the roadway, working with private landowners or federal land management agencies to um, come up with solutions to fencing that's not so friendly for wildlife. Um, yeah, that's that project we've put together, you know, as we're trying to help you guys out with is modifying some fencing and, you know, actually making it easier for animals to go from summer range to winter range and vice versa. So, yep, absolutely. And, you know, we, we there's the secretarial order there in, the, in our state action plan. There, there's an implementation part of it. And there's a research part of yeah. it. And we've identified research needs as well and, and ha have been, uh, been able to utilize some of those funds to address some of our. So, give us an example of what you've been doing with that research. Are you are you putting collars out? Are you crunching data? Are you running models? What's really going on there? Yeah, now? the first segment of that was we have been uh, radio collaring mule deer and really intensively since 1998. So, with uh, and then starting to use GPS collars here in the last decade or so. So we were sitting on literally millions and millions of locations from all these radio collared deer. Uh, this gave us the opportunity then to hire some people specifically to take all those millions of points and make sense of them from tracking mule deer, where they spend the summer, where they spend the winter, and how they get from point A to point B. And so that was the first segment of it. The next part of this is, uh, from a pronghorn standpoint, we, we, I'll be honest, we don't know a lot about pronghorn in, in Idaho. I'm just being honest with you. Uh, you, you do, I mean, you don't think of pronghorn when you think Idaho. You think of Wyoming, you think of Montana. Uh, yeah, you guys see, I was surprised at the number of pronghorn you actually have. But if you think about how the state's set up where, you know, the panhandle and the middle part of the state's basically mountains and then the Snake River Plains and the rest are the flats that pronghorn love. So. Yeah, so now we're in the phase, the second part of this, if you will, a significant amount of time and effort and resources, radio collars and capture is going to go apply to pronghorn so we can get a better handle on how these herds interact, where do they summer, where do they winter, how do they get from point A to point B, is there obstacles that we can mitigate and fix on the landscape to help them to get from point A to point B. And then the second part of that, we're going to be looking in northern Idaho. Uh, we have up in the panhandle, we have a wildlife management up, uh, area uh, up there, WMA, called MacArthur. And once again, being honest, there's a lot that takes place up there from not only an elk standpoint, uh, whitetails, mule deer, uh, what about moose? moose? Yeah, yeah, That's moose. So we're going to make a concerted effort up there uh, to place out a lot of radio collars on all those different species 
to see how they use the landscape up there. And they also have to deal with a major highway that runs north and south. They got rivers. Uh, they got a growing human population of people. So there's a lot of issues up there, too, that we're going to try and resolve to help those populations. Great. And both, both of those research projects that Daryl just mentioned, they're, they're identified in our state action plan. And, the, and they go hand in hand with two of the implementation projects. The, the trick is, though, we know we have issues with wildlife getting across uh, roadways in those areas, but we don't quite have the perfect handle on how to address those situations. Yeah. So this data that we're gathering from these colored animals will help to make a better informed decision about how to go ahead and implement to get something done. You know, when I first started working um, in migration corridors in the northwest uh, part of Wyoming and that, we used to say, we think we know where they're at, but we're going to let the animals tell us where we need to be looking at. And I think that you're explaining the same thing. Crunch the data, bring it in. The other thing I think is, is you're not doing this behind closed doors. You're being open and honest about it. The public can call, ask you questions. You guys put information out there. You know, it's no longer the trust us, we're the government, we know best. It's really, you know, we're we're looking at the animals, we're applying some professional skill sets and experience, and then we're going out there trying to help the people of Idaho and the people of this country deal with the fact that we've got a lot of people on the landscape and wildlife are still using it. And I can tell you from working in this business that when you talk about, we talk about habitat all day long and people may or may not get it. You talk about crossings and stopping collisions, boom, they get it because they either hit a deer or they know someone that's hit a deer. And the statistics don't lie about fatalities, injuries, insurance claims, all that other stuff. So what I think this order and the way you guys have approached it is, is you're taking something that actually is intimate with each person that drives or travels on a roadway and then we're we're putting the wildlife management and the science behind it, and I think that's so cool. I mean, I I I mean, I remember the old VHS callers where you had to go out there with the Yagi antennas and fly around, and you may or may not get that animal that day. Today, it's just uploaded, and you know we can we're, we can get anywhere from two to twelve hours where that animal was each day. It's awesome. Yeah, things have really changed, and uh, the technology over my career, like you were pointing out, VHF collars to now where we're with GPS collars, it's just, it's incredible. It's so fascinating to watch, and who knows where technology is going to evolve over the next several years, but it is incredible the amount of information that we can learn from populations or individual animals who are carrying these GPS collars, and it it's vitally important to help us make decisions uh, from a habitat standpoint or these crossings, where they need to go, how they need to be designed. And so, yeah, it's fascinating work. So how are, um, how's the rest of the state doing outside of the crossings? Have we got a good deer herd? Are you guys uh, okay with where we're at, hunting opportunity? Do you guys get to get out much? Yeah, from that standpoint, overall population of mule deer in the state of Idaho, like other states, we went through a five-year period there where we had a series of mild winters, and that allowed populations to grow. We had above-normal survival. Populations responded. There was a lot more deer on the landscape. And then about the winter of 2017, like a lot of other western states, we got back to normal. We, we got hit again, and we lost some critters. And so the last two to three years, we've had more normal winter-type events. And so our populations have come down a little bit, and we've made adjustments to our opportunity. That's what we do. 
Uh, we've reduced some doe hunting opportunities, backed off on that. We've shortened some seasons and reduced some controlled hunt permits. Um, and we'll continue to monitor our populations. And when we get a little rebound, we can give that opportunity back to our sportsmen. Great. So a um, couple other things. We're going to be wrapping up here soon because I know you guys got to get on the road. Um, was there legislation just recently passed that is going to address some of the non-resident, I guess, cost issues, Matt? Yeah. So our commission, as I mentioned when we first started talking here, um, just put a rule forth that gives them the ability to basically limit the non-resident, the, the number of non-resident deer and elk hunters per per game management unit for elk it's for per elk zone for right. deer it's per game management unit so with that if we do have some reduction in non-resident uh participation in the state which again full disclosure it, it's a big part of our revenue right. base. we in order for us to to manage wildlife in idaho we need it requires funding. And a, and a That's that user pay model we talk yeah. about, all that. License dollars is what funds your guys' work. Absolutely. We get no general fund dollars. We're, yeah. we're funded by sportsmen. So so anyhow, and, and, a, and a big component of those dollars comes from a non-resident. So if we do see a reduction in non-resident hunters, there was a, a, a some accompanying legislation to that that increased tag and license fees for non-residents. And, and Daryl, that, that, did that just pass in the legislature? I haven't been keeping close enough tabs on that. I'm not sure where it is in the process. I yeah. know it's been in committees, and I think it's come out of committee, but it hasn't went before the full House. Or so are we seeing those. a giant jump in price or moditing, modest? I mean, most of the time non-residents take it in the shorts in every state, and that's just the way it is. Um, and, and, you know, what I know from the state doesn't want to see the – obstacle put in front of folks to come hunt your stays so usually they try to push for a modest increase so it's going to vary uh depending on the license and tag fees uh from species to species for deer it's probably going to be just a slight increase for elk it's probably going to be more significant and how did that occur is the department looked at all the surrounding states to see what right. we charge our non-residents compared to what Wyoming or Utah, they charge their non-residents. So to be competitive in that world, we looked at that and went, oh, well, yeah, we're on the short end here. We probably should be comparable to other states. So it'll vary greatly depending on where we fall out in average compared to other states and for those folks that want to put in for a limited draw what's your deadline for non-residents and residents to put in so you buy a non-resident hunting license or if you're a resident buy a hunting license and then from uh, may 1 to june 5th you can either go online or get a hard copy of one of our brochures and go through it and pick out your favorite controlled or limited entry hunt for deer or elk or pronghorn okay. and you apply from may 1 to june 5th okay so it's a little later than some states yes. a little bit different but that's good to know so may 1st to june 5th is your application period for limited yep. draw tags and i think it's also worth mentioning for people who have been applying in idaho for a lot of years that in the past we've always uh had two options you could you could, well more than two options but one of the options was that you could you can mail it fill out tear out that page out of your regulations fill it out and send it in that's no longer an option people need to be aware of that they either need to do it online 
or come in or in person or on phone and that's just a sign of the times that's the printing cost all the other things that as we look at reduced budgets and reduced revenue and we want the the money being put out where it's needed the most we're going to have to make some sacrifices on things like printed books and application fees and everything else so um one last thing we when we ask most of our state hosts cwd do you have it are you are you fair i mean you got it close because i live pretty close to some of those places and i've seen it so what's the status there we have not yet detected cwd in the state of idaho uh we have been actively uh surveillance collecting samples for probably 20 years with uh, focus along the idaho wyoming border and now here more recently the idaho montana border but once again, we collected over a thousand samples, uh, mostly through check stations, uh, and knock on wood, Idaho, we have yet to detect it. Well, let's hope it stays that way, and let's hope that everyone that comes to Idaho this year has a good time. They're successful whether they bag an animal or not, and that they can, you know, feel sleep sleep well at night, knowing you know professionals like both of you are out there trying to take care of their deer and elk and uh, other game animals. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Have a safe drive home, and until next time, thank you for talking mule deer. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.